As Christians, we have this interesting misperception that we continuously fall into, that we have to be in perfect shape to be used by God. So if we're wrestling through something, a trauma, a mental health challenge, a disability, we can come to believe that we are disqualified from being used by God. I refer to this as an interesting misperception because scripture is filled with people used by God who seem to be carrying these disqualifications. And here's where God really shows his upside down kingdom. Not only were those things not disqualifications, but sometimes they were actually what qualified and equipped the person to be able to serve. I'm really grateful for this conversation with Michael because as he opens up about his own challenges navigating depression, we learn more and more about how what could have been perceived as a disqualification actually qualified him to care for his church in a deeper way than he could have ever imagined. And I think you'll discover that God is qualifying you as well. You're listening to episode 143 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good. And I just thank you for your infinite wisdom and whatever is going on with this season focused on sitting and suffering and the people that you've brought about, the conversations that you've brought about, because I just know that you're after abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And so I anticipate the same in this conversation with Michael. I thank you for the privilege for us to just connect and talk about you and talk about where you are in the midst of hardship and I do pray that whatever we're coming to the table with, that we just want to position ourselves to release it to you, to say, here we are, and to entrust you with that, because we know you can do a lot more with our words and thoughts than we ever could. So guide this conversation, guide wherever it needs to go, and I pray in all of it that you would be honored and glorified. In my prayer is holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, Michael, I'm looking forward to our conversation and the opportunity to get to know you. But before we jump in, for anyone that's listening, what would you want them to know about who you are as we start this conversation? Sure. I think first thing to know about me is I'm a person of faith. I grew up in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and I'm currently a pastor in that church. My faith in God is pretty strong and pretty steady. I've experienced, I'm hesitant to say I've experienced God speaking to me because it's not as crazy as that might sound, but I've certainly felt God's presence throughout my life. But the other piece of me that I think is really important is that I've lived with depression for pretty much all of my life. You know, an illness that has given me some real days of suffering and questioning and tremendous amount of guilt, most of which was, from a logical standpoint, unwarranted, but felt really strong, and which has led me to the verge of suicide on several occasions. Mm. It's been a strange journey in my life so far, having that strong, I call it the dark voice that speaks to me through depression and tells me how worthless and terrible I am, but at the same time, having the voice of God telling me that I'm. I'm loved and I'm okay and I've got a path to follow. And it's sometimes been a real joy to manage that and sometimes been a real challenge. Yeah. You wrote this book, Dark Water. And at the end of the introduction, you say, uh, Dark Water is the story of the voices I hear, the voice of depression and the voice of faith. And I'm excited to hear your story because depression is one of those things that I think we widely misunderstand mm -hmm. because we diminish it. It's like, oh man, I dropped my enchilada on the floor. I'm so depressed, right? Like we, <laughs> right. we just throw that word out. And when somebody is actually navigating clinical depression, that leaves us not really understanding what that means. And when you're talking about it, you're talking about a life of navigating this and you're a pastor yeah. who has to navigate this while also shepherding others. So 
I just want to jump right in. Tell me your story, Michael. Sure. Like I said, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. My father's a pastor. My mother's an organist. So I basically breathed faith in my house growing up. Mm. I didn't even question it for most of my childhood. It was just part of who I was. I have a younger sister who I always fought with, mm. but who turned out to be a real supporter of me in the end. Growing up, I was always the smart kid in my class in school. You know, I was kind of like the big fish in a small pond, but I was definitely the whiz kid. Mm. And that was great in some ways, but it also really helped me to think that everything comes easy to me. And certainly schoolwork did come very easy to me. As I grew up, though, I found that it was really, really hard to try things if I wasn't sure I was going to be good at it. Because if I didn't succeed at something immediately, it felt like I was a failure. And I think some of the early signs of depression that I experienced was through moments like that when I would feel very frustrated that I couldn't do something immediately or things didn't work out the way I wanted them to. And it very quickly turned from I failed and this feels terrible to I am a failure and there's something seriously wrong with me and maybe I should just go away. So I started experiencing that in little ways as a kid. Didn't really know what it was about, just thought I was a moody, deep kid. It was in high school that it first got to the point where suicide came onto the table. Mm. I had, you know, a typical relationship issue like teenagers do, mm -hmm. but I got so upset and so twisted in my own head about it and felt like I had done something so horrible and I was so messed up that it would be better for the whole world if I just weren't here. Mm. And so, I put a suicide plan together, and in retrospect, it was the dumbest suicide plan anybody's ever done, which was that there was a deep pool in a, in a creek near my house where I thought if I just tie some rocks to my feet, I could jump in it and not come up again. As it turns out, that deep pool was only two feet deep, oh, and God. the rocks <laughs> didn't pull me down anyway, and I didn't tell anybody about that. I just held on to that, and I just went about my day, and when I got to college, my first semester, I had another attempt that was a little more reasonable in terms of being a suicide attempt. I was up a tree ready to hang myself. Mm. And here's where my faith and my depression really hit together and intersected in a big way for the first time. I was convinced at that moment that I was doing the world a favor by getting rid of myself. Mm. I had read A Tale of Two Cities, and one thing that was going through my head was it is a far better thing I do today than anyone has ever done before. I thought I was a martyr for the world because I was so messed up. And I stood in that tree, and I didn't want to do it. My survival instinct kicked in, and I felt like, I don't want to do this, but I know I should. And I actually prayed to God to give me strength to do it. Mm. That's how twisted up I was. And while I was there, I suddenly saw in the distance this light shining in the darkness. And I think probably it was somebody turning their garage light on or, or something like that. But I saw that light as a sign. And in that moment, when that light came on, I felt the voice of God telling me, no, this is not what I want. I just felt so certain that God had spoken to me and said, climb back down. I don't want you to do this. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And that ended up leading to a hospitalization. I was hospitalized for 11 days. 
it was in that hospitalization that I finally realized that this was important to people. I didn't realize how many of my friends and family would be upset about this. Mm. <laughs> it just didn't occur to me. But they kept visiting me and they kept crying. And there was one friend who refused to visit me. She was so angry at me because of this. And then, you know, eventually got over that and we had a good conversation about it. But that's when I started to realize that I really do have a problem here. Mm. This is not normal. This is not the way most people are. But at the same time, that was a moment when I felt an incredible amount of hope. And I had a really good experience there. Some people have terrible experiences in mental wards, but I had a really good experience. And I felt like God was speaking to me through the other patients there and through the staff and most of all through my friends and family who kept coming to visit. From that point on, I just started to accept that this was part of who I was. I was somebody who was living with this problem, this illness that I needed to manage, but that I also was living with a God who was going to go with me through it. What's really interesting, it's not just that you were living through it, but you know, as I mentioned before, you're now pastoring. Yeah. There's this mentality that we can have that we can only help people if we're in good shape mm -hmm. <laughs> or flip it around. Like if I'm not healed, if I'm still wrestling with something, then how in the world can I come alongside others? And so how did you navigate that tension? I imagine in the early days, there may have been parts of you that kind of hoped this would go away or that God would heal it. Mm -hmm. But at some point you realize, as you noted, this is part of my journey. Yep. How did you navigate that piece of recognizing that God was inviting you to shepherd others, even as you were still and will continue to navigate this hard thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Even accepting that this was an ongoing thing was something of a journey for me. There were certainly moments when I thought, hey, I've beaten this. Mm. This is now in my past. I've been wrong. When I first got ordained about 15 years ago, I was given the advice by someone who knew my history. I thought maybe I'd start talking about this in some way, you know, share with people depression. And this person's advice to me, this other pastor's advice to me was, make sure you frame it as something in the past. Mm. People like to know about your scars, but not about your wounds. Mm. And at first I did kind of follow that guidance, but eventually it really just became clear to me that these are not just scars. This is an ongoing thing. You know, I really believe depression is something I'm going to live with my whole life. Some people live with chronic illnesses. And eventually, I decided to just come out there and say it. The church I'm at right now, I've been at for 10 years, and I was only there six months when I first talked about this publicly there. It kind of surprised me when I kind of heard the whisper in my head to say, you know, this is the week I want you to talk about this in a sermon. Mm. I thought, this is too soon. They have to get to know me better. What was going through my head, I think, at the time was, you know what? I want to know if they accept me or not now. I don't want to stay here if this isn't going to be a place where I'm accepted, because that's how it kind of felt at the time was that I was hiding something. So what I did was I preached the sermon. I don't really remember what the overall topic of the sermon was, but in some way it was about, you know, we all struggle with various things. Mm -hmm. And I just said very clearly, you know, the big thing I struggle with is depression. And I explained to people what depression is like, how it feels, you know, what I go through and how I believe that God is with me through it. And I invited them, I said, and I invite you now in the silence I'm going to give to call out what you struggle with. And I expected to hear maybe one or two people say something. I heard dozens of people say things. Mm. People called out cancer. Someone called out alcoholism. Someone called out struggles with my children. And a number of people called out depression. And it was really amazing to me that this congregation was really willing to go there with me. 
And since then, this has become a place where we can talk about it. Mm. Conversations about mental illness are not something that happen everywhere in the church, for sure. But I think the congregation I serve now is a place where they happen more than most. And I think it's partially because I took the risk of talking about it with them so early. Mm -hmm. And it's been good because I think what it's enabled people to do is to see not only that I'm human, which for some people is something they need to learn about pastors, but also that you don't have to have your act together to be in the church. You don't have to have it all worked out and then you can come and be part of it. Mm -hmm. I think we've been slowly becoming a place where we recognize that we're all beggars who are, you know, just showing each other where to find food. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to model for them that just because I'm a pastor and I'm ordained doesn't mean that I'm any closer to God than the rest of you. It means that, you know, maybe I know the historical background behind scripture better than you. And maybe it means that I can kind of formulate theological statements quicker, but we're all trying to figure out where God is in our life. And I think being vulnerable and taking this risk has been a real positive thing for them and for me. There's this topic that keeps on coming up in conversation around the idea of normalcy. Mm. And I feel like we have all been kind of duped by this deceit of normalcy that We have this idea that we could possibly achieve perfection, right? Like be the best that we want to be, the healthiest that we want to be, the most comfortable and resource that we want to be. That's normal, Mm -hmm. right? And anything that impacts that is abnormal. Mm -hmm. And so something like depression, which robs you of the opportunity to be happy at times. Absolutely. Well, happiness is normal. Therefore, depression is abnormal. Therefore, it is bad. And then you get to a place where roles of spiritual leadership, we carry that expectation even further. It's kind of like I was saying earlier, like the pastor really needs to have their stuff together and not have any kind of issues because if they have issues, they're going to be less equipped to support me because they're going to be dealing with their own stuff. And so, you know, you were coached to say (laughs) depression was in the past. And so depression was a disqualifier. Mm -hmm. But what you just described is the actual reality of how God created us and created the world. It's actually a qualifier. You actually owning that part of who you were allowed an entire body of people to be able to own what they were going through, to be honest in ways that maybe they never had, maybe they never thought they could. And so depression became a qualifier to actually shepherd this body (laughs) in a deeper spiritual way than the best theological training could have equipped you for. How can people get to this place where they stop seeing these things as abnormalities or disqualifiers and actually recognize that God can work through whoever he wants to work through, but sometimes he chooses to work through people that are working through stuff because he's doing something deeper? I think that's a great question. I mean, it'd be easy for me to say, well, just do what I did, you know, be honest, but um, (laughs) yeah, that's not fair. I think a lot of us put masks on all the time. I think we put masks on for social media. I think we put masks on for our jobs. I think we put masks on for church, for sure. A member of a church I used to serve as pastor, this woman hadn't been in church for a year or two, and I ran into her at the store, and we had a great conversation, and she said, oh, pastor, my life is just a wreck right now. I promise I'll be back to church when I get things together. Mm And I told her, I said, don't wait until you have things together. This is when to come to the church now. But I think she had this idea that I think a lot of us do, that this is where you come when you've got it figured out and you can thank God for all the ways that God's made you perfect. Mm-hmm. And now I've got an image of the story of the Pharisee who prays, you know, I thank you, God, for making me who I am and not like that tax collector over there. Mm-hmm. The tax collector prays, God, forgive me. Mm-hmm. I'm a sinner. 
And Jesus commended him for that. And I think that's an image of how we're called to come together. Anything we can do to kind of let the masks down and recognize that we don't have to be perfect to approach God. We don't have to be perfect to approach one another. And in fact, we're not, you know, none of us are. Mm-hmm. And maybe for some of us, it's letting go of the belief that we are. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine how life would be different if we stopped trying to pursue perfection and embrace the reality that like, actually, there's something beautiful yeah. about the imperfections that yeah. God's placed within us. Yeah. Why is it that we don't want to accept that truth? Like, why do we fight so hard against that when it's actually like we can recognize it as good news? We can look at scripture and see it affirmed, but why do we fight against this? Yeah, I mean, I think historically, I think the church has made some mistakes over the centuries. I think there have been times when it, there's been dress codes in church and there's been, you know, you have to, you know, give a certain amount of money. And I think there have been some institutional choices that haven't helped. Yeah. You know, maybe we all have a fear that if they knew who I really was, they wouldn't accept me. Mm-hmm. And if God knew who I really was, God wouldn't accept me. And I think the good news is that God accepts us exactly as we are. Mm -hmm. I think God shakes his head when we try and pretend we're not who we are. Mm -hmm. You said something that I think is really important in general, but also really relevant to your story, that the church has made mistakes. Yeah. Even the story you told about the Pharisees saying, you know, at least I'm not that guy. Yeah, right. How often in scripture we see them looking down on people because they didn't attain to a certain level. So I think there are two parts to this. Like, I think there is a personal element to it. Like, how can we learn to recognize the negative voices and to discern the voice of God and the voice of others that are healthy and make those decisions within our lives? But I think it is important that we're not just placing all of the burden on us individually Mm -hmm. and that we're acknowledging what is the role of spiritual leadership, which is why the story you shared about God prompting you to do something, you're like, "Ah, not yet, God, it's not time. (laughs) This is why that's such a beautiful story because, man, if spiritual leadership communicates that, what does humility look like? What does openness look like? What does authenticity look like? You know, like the Apostle Paul says, I do not understand what I do because the things I hate to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't. Like he would never have said that as a Pharisee because he could not admit that he was doing the wrong things. Absolutely would never have done that. But he's doing it in written form so that I mean, at this point, millions can know about his faults. If spiritual leadership's conveying that, then they're communicating the value of honesty and confession and transparency to those that they are serving. And then they will start to walk in that and communicate that to others. But if spiritual leadership is instead communicating, hey, I've got my life together. And if you stop sinning, your life would be back together too. Or, hey, I've got no issues and it's because God's favoring me or, hey, whatever it is that we're communicating, if it's actually pride or if it's actually fear, Mm -hmm. like you noted, Mm -hmm. it's hard enough for everyday people to be afraid of what people think of them. But when you're in spiritual leadership, I mean, the stakes are higher, but also there's a lot more eyes watching you and a much higher standard you're being asked to be held to. It's not a surprise that spiritual leadership and churches and authorities over the year have really struggled with this one. It's not a surprise because we're humans, but we can see the ramifications of that. Yeah. So what does the church do at this point? Now that we're at a time when mental health is actually being talked about, Mm -hmm. you know, people are, their business is a little more accessible than it was when you could only know what someone was going through. If you were in the town or heard through connections, like now we are interconnected. How does the church step into this space in a healthier way? Yeah, I agree with you that we are in a much better place in terms of talking about mental health than we were 
decades ago. I think the stigma mm-hmm. is still there, but it's not nearly as strong as it used to be. Yeah. And I think the upcoming generation, you know, I've got a teenage kid and there's a lot of talk about mental health in school right now that there never was when I was in school. I think the church is a place where we can talk about healing, mm. but we can talk about healing in a really specific way. And what that way is, is, is not to say that we're going to take mental illnesses away by praying. Mm-hmm. I mean, miracles happen, but that's not likely. No more likely than praying is going to take diabetes or cancer away. But while we're praying about that, we can talk about it. We can talk about the fact that it's okay to have depression or anxiety or even a more difficult to manage issue like schizophrenia. Yeah. And to say that where God is in this is as a companion on our journey and someone who is always with us. I see Christ as someone who comes into the muck of life and suffers with us. Mm-hmm. And he healed a lot of people and he raised some people from the dead, but he didn't do that for everybody. Mm-hmm but he comes into our lives and walks with us and heals us in a deeper way. I feel like I'm being healed all the time, Mm -hmm. even though I'm not cured, but I'm accepted and I'm loved and I'm here. An image that's really been meaningful to me in the last couple of months is the, the road to Emmaus story. The day of the resurrection, a couple of Jesus' disciples who didn't know yet that he was raised from the dead took a walk to Emmaus. And along the way, they were just grieving what had just happened and the loss and the idea that, well, maybe he wasn't the Messiah and who knows what's going to happen to us. And Jesus came and started walking with them. And they didn't know it was Jesus, but he was there and walked with them in their grief and talked with them. And then a little while later, they all shared a meal and they suddenly realized it was Jesus and he was gone. And I feel like in some ways, that's where God's been in my life. I've had a lot of journeys where I've been in a place that's kind of like grief. And while God hasn't taken that away, when I look back, it's clear God was walking with me and talking with me the entire time. And that has made a huge difference. And I think that's what the church can be, is a place where we say, look, we are all carrying something, Mm -hmm. some kind of suffering in one way or another. That's not a disqualifier, like you said, from being part of God's family. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's exactly how God wants to relate to us. You know, you said something in there that I think is really important too around healing because my last season was 51 episodes, so (laughs) many episodes on healing. You know, God brought me to this place of having to continue to sit in this space of what is healing and what is the expectation of healing. And if God is a healer, what in the world is he healing if he's not healing the things that we're asking him to heal? And, you know, you made an important point that you know that you are being healed. And while somebody could look at you and say, but is your depression gone? You know, the reality is what God is healing is much bigger than what we expect him to heal. Mm. Put it another way, we get all bent out of shape that God isn't healing our physical bodies or our physical minds. Meanwhile, God's like, but that thing's going to fade away. That's a temporary vessel. (laughs) Of course, we can't grasp that because this temporary vessel, it has to last our entire lifetime, however long that is. Yeah, right. But when you look at a lifetime in terms of eternity, 80 years or so is nothing. Yeah. And God is watching us very patiently <laughs> get all worked up that he's not fixing this temporary vessel, <laughs> this thing that was not designed to last. Mm-hmm. And he's very patiently trying to remind us, look, I'm doing something within your soul, within your spirit. Mm-hmm. There's healing happening there. And sometimes he'll fix the little piece here and the little piece there, right? Mm -hmm. But like, ultimately, he knows there's something greater and that the greater healing can happen even if the other healing doesn't. Or sometimes 
because the other healing hasn't happened. Sure, sure. You know, what we're really talking about here is mindset shifts. How do we understand healing? How do we understand ourselves? How do we understand what's normal? How do we understand what's broken? But I think there's this other piece that we need to address because somebody could hear your story and say, well, that's great for Michael, but he's a pastor. So Mm -hmm. of course, God's going to use him and God's going to use his depression. And, but I'm just a person. Mm -hmm. I have no influence. I have no scope. And so while his disqualifier is actually a qualifier, like I feel like my struggle, there's nothing redemptive about it. So what would you say to the person who feels like they don't have value because they're not in spiritual leadership and therefore their problems are just problems compounded on their lack of value? Oh, I think the first thing I'd want to do is sit and listen to them. Mm-hmm. What I hear there is somebody who feels like they don't have a place in the world. They don't have a role. And I think that absolutely is something a lot of people struggle with. And depression can really lead to thoughts like that and feelings like that. One of the things that has come through talking about this is a deeper level of relationship that I have with my congregation and even with friends and family. I think there's a depth to the relationships I have with people, which is ironic because one thing depression does is encourage you to isolate and pull back from them. Mm -hmm. But when I have the guts to talk about it and say, yeah, I have been having a really bad week. As scary as it is to say that, suddenly it turns into a conversation that I don't want to say it feels good because it doesn't always feel good, but it feels real and it feels like healing in the process. So I think what I'd say to that person is that what I think God has made us for is to be in relationship with one another. And it doesn't matter whether you're a spiritual leader or what role you play in the world that way. Let's find a place where you can be who you are and find God's presence through those relationships. And I think sometimes support groups can be a great place for that kind of thing to happen. Churches, if they're open and willing to talk about this stuff, can be a great place for that to happen. Mm. Yeah, but I don't know. I mean, like I said, I just, I'd want to talk to that person, listen to that person. Yeah. You know, we just have such a skewed understanding of what God values and who God uses. Mm. And we do like stick it on spiritual leaders and charismatic personalities and people are doing a lot of things. But the person that God saw was this young man at a tree, middle of the night, that was convinced that he had no value Mm -hmm. and that others agreed and he'd actually be doing a service to leave the world, right? Mm -hmm. All these voices had put so many lies that that's where you were. And meanwhile, God's like, no, actually, no, you have value. But this isn't how the story went. The story didn't go, you came down from the tree and immediately you started this grand ministry that (laughs) changed nations, right? No, like, your life went on, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And now we're talking and now we're sharing stories about saying to the congregation, hey, I have depression. And they all start saying all their things and put their business out there. But there is a period of time where what we assume happens that suddenly God makes our purpose and value abundantly clear and suddenly we're producing all this fruit. There was a period of time where that didn't exist. And As you were talking, it made me think about how we know of the Apostle Paul. We know of Jesus, of course. We know of Jesus' disciples. But as you were talking, you know, it made me think that among the 12, Mm -hmm. and then Judas did his thing, and then they had the 11, there were also other disciples. At the beginning of Acts, you find out there's like 120 of them, Mm -hmm. people who are faithful, so faithful that when they had to fill Judas's spot, They had a group of people that were just as engaged and faithful and spiritually healthy as the 11, right? Because they were able to step into that role. But we don't really hear about them up until that point. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a body of people that Jesus loved and that Jesus saw as faithful that we will never know their names on this side of eternity. 
And there are people that Jesus loves and sees as faithful that are all around us right now that we may never know how God is using them. And we may be that person. <laughs> Absolutely. God may be working through us in the job that he has us or in the relationships that he has us in the community that has us in ways that we don't know because it's not our job to plant the seed, water it, cultivate it and grow and put the fruit and say, look what I did. Yeah. <laughs> we may never see the fruit. And that's the piece that we miss. And going back to this idea of depression, there are so many things that are saying everything they can to make sure that we don't realize that. Like so many lies around us, whether internally or externally, human or spiritual warfare, whatever it is, <laughs> that are keeping us from acknowledging this very gentle, sweet reality that we are loved by God and that God invites us to let him work through us and we get to be a part of something really beautiful. But it takes us a while to get there. <laughs> oh, it sure does. And I don't know if any of us fully get there in this life. <laughs> but yeah, no, amen. I agree with everything you just said. You know, let's say somebody's listening right now and they are carrying something as well. And they are feeling like they're sitting and suffering. And specifically, they're coming to terms with reality. I feel like this might be a lifelong thing. Yeah. But they're not yet at peace with it. Yeah. You know, what would you say to someone who's in that space? I'd say you're not alone. Other people have walked this and don't know exactly what you're going through, but have had feelings in the same ballpark of what you're feeling. Mm -hmm. I would say that it's not your fault. I don't know what's behind what your struggle is, but it's not because you've done anything to deserve it or earn it. I don't believe it's punishment, but I'd also say there's hope. I believe God comes into the darkest times in our lives. You know, that's why we celebrate Christmas on the winter solstice. The darkest time of year is when we need to see the light. And that's the promise that God gave us through Jesus, that the light is coming. It's not going to suddenly be a toggle switch that makes everything happy in your life, but it is something that makes everything possible. Yeah. I've experienced that, and I believe God wants that for you too. Yeah. You know, there is a point early on in your life, you, you know, grew up always knowing that there was a God, right? In the early part of your life, you understood God in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And now you've been on this journey and you've been navigating depression and God didn't take it away, but you're now you're realizing, oh, this isn't a disqualifier. And so you've had this beautiful journey and you've learned more about God along the way. What's different about the way you see God now mm. than the way that you saw him then? I see God as, as a lot more of a mystery now than I used to. Mm. I used to really think that God was something we could understand. You know, if I just kept, you know, reading and kept thinking and praying, I would get it. And I felt like I was getting closer and closer to kind of understanding exactly who God is. And more and more, though, I'm seeing that God is vaster, you know, probably vaster than any of us could ever understand, but that there is such beauty in that mystery. And that mystery is also somehow as simple as love, that God wants good for us. God wants good for me and God wants good for this world, but I have a really hard time putting too much more detail onto it. Mm -hmm. When you talked about it being vast, but also as simple as love, what it made me think of is the way that God put it in scripture, when they would ask who he is, he would say, I am. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm with you. It's this beautiful tension of both knowing that God is beyond my comprehension and yet accessible. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Great way. You know, let's say somebody's listening and they want to know more about your story. They want to connect with you. They want to get your book. Sure. What's the best way for someone to do all that? <laughs> the best way to do that would be to go to my website at thescholtes.com. I'll spell that. It's T-H-E-S-C-H-O-L-T-E-S.com. 
It's mostly a blog, and I put some of my sermons up there and some other things I write. There's a page there that links to the book, Dark Water, as well as to a newsletter I send out every week that kind of just talks about mental illness and faith and how they weave back and forth. So Mm. I'm also on Facebook as Dark Water Author and on Twitter too, but I don't do too much on Twitter. So my website probably be the best way to go. That's great. And as we close out, is there anything else that God's putting in your heart that you want to share before we go? Yeah. Talked about Paul a little bit. And one thing that has really become important to me is when Paul talks about his thorn, Mm -hmm. that he has this thorn that God gave him, and he doesn't go into any detail about what that is. Mm -hmm. And commentators have made guesses. Some people said he had epilepsy. Some people have said he had depression. Some people have said, no, he's just talking about people who don't like him. (laughs) But Paul deliberately didn't say what it was, but said that he prayed for God to take it away. And God said, no. My strength comes through your weakness. And so Paul embraced that. Mm. I'm at a point in my life where I feel that that's what depression is in my life. That is my thorn of Paul. Would I like God to take this away? Sure. But I think God makes a difference in the world through it. Mm. And my guess is that all of us have something like that, Mm. that seems like something that's not good. And it's probably not good, (laughs) but nonetheless, God can use that for good, which is the amazing thing about God. God is with you. Whoever you are listening to this, God is with you. And God can use even that part of you that you don't like because God's just that amazing. You will walk, you will run, dance through the streets, shouting praise to the one. You're healed, you're clean. Go out, tell the people what you've seen. Revived in Him, new life in Him. Too often, God gives us an invitation, and we disqualify ourselves. As I shared at the start, there are so many individuals in Scripture who carried with them things that we would see as disqualifications that were actually used by God. And we can also find examples of individuals disqualifying themselves. One of the most well-known is in Exodus 4, when God calls Moses. At the time, the Israelite people had been in captivity for hundreds of years. And God had decided to use Moses to be his voice to call Pharaoh to let the people go. And God makes it abundantly clear to Moses that he is God and that he is powerful. And yet this is what Moses says starting in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. So what's happening here? Well, some scholars believe that Moses had a speech impediment. And perhaps he had this his whole life, and perhaps he had experienced when that speech impediment had been a limitation, had been a disqualifier. And now he's being invited to the most important and intense role of his life, to speak on behalf of an entire people group to one of the most powerful leaders in the world at that time. And Moses could logically determine that the best person, the most qualified person to speak to Pharaoh would be one who could speak eloquently would be one who could speak powerfully and charismatically. And he knew he was not that person. In fact, he saw himself as the opposite, that he couldn't speak well. And as a result, not only would he not be able to speak efficiently to Pharaoh, but he could actually cause more problems. 
So Moses determined that his inability to speak well disqualified him. Have you felt this way too? Have you sensed God inviting you to something, but you told God, well, I can't be that person. I can't do that thing. And here's what's so wild about Moses' moment. Not only did God clearly give Moses an invitation, but he had proven himself over and over and over again. A burning bush, empowering Moses to turn his staff into a snake, or turn his hand leprous, or making it clear that he would be able to turn water into blood. God had already shown his power and authority over the physical world and Moses' own body. And yet, Moses' stubborn understanding of his disqualifications kept him from believing that God could be powerful over his mouth as well. Even when God directly said, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Even when he said this, Moses' response was still, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Here's the thing we need to realize about this passage. It wasn't that God was looking for someone, happened to see Moses in the desert, didn't know who he was, and said, hey, you come over here, I need to ask you to do something, and then was blindsided when he learned this person couldn't speak well. That's not what happened. What happened was God had seen Moses, Moses' entire life. God knew Moses more deeply than Moses knew himself, and God had formed his body and could continue to form and guide that body. In other words, God was not surprised that Moses couldn't speak well. In fact, it was likely one of the things that qualified him for that moment, because it meant that every time Moses would speak to Pharaoh, Moses would know that it was by the power of God and not his own ability. Right now, I want to invite you to be honest about what you think disqualifies you from being used by God, what you think limits you. And I want you to know that the same God that spoke to Moses is the same God inviting you today to trust him. He is the God who formed the mouth and could, as a result, guide Moses' mouth to speak to Pharaoh. And he is the same God who formed you and can guide your body and mind in ways beyond your own capacity and understanding. If God is giving you an invitation, he is inviting you as you are because he knows who you are and how he intends to use his beloved child. You are not disqualified. And that thing that fills you with fear may be the thing that actually qualifies you in ways you could never have imagined. All you need to do is not do what Moses did, which was to say to God, not me, send someone else. Instead, do what Samuel did. Say, here I am. Trust that God knows you and your limitations more deeply than you do, and that while we are limited, he is limitless. Step into his invitations with an expectation to see him work in ways you could never have imagined. And then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the person who doesn't want to read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what Revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal Revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what Revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, 
you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of their music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?